please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 23 this morning, and you can find it in your Bible under the translator heading uh, titled, David Anointed King. Se habla español, abran sus libros a 1 Samuel, capítulo 16, versículo 1 a 23. El título de la traducción dice, David ungido por Samuel. And if you're not familiar with the Bible this morning, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all learning together each and every week to learn to read the Bible. And each and every week as we come together and open up this word, we have faith that God is speaking to us. He is working by His Spirit, through His Word, to speak to His people. And that's our expectation this morning as well. So this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can grab one underneath the uh, center chair in your aisle. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, or you can look it up on your phone's browser or preferred Bible app of choice. In English, we're going to be reading from the ESV translation. And so, as we jog our memories and jump back into 1 Samuel, we remind ourselves that 1 Samuel is a book about kingship. That is the development and establishment of Israel's first monarchy. That is how Israel came to have a human king and what it meant that they would ask for and receive such a king. And so overall, the big idea of the whole book is that the book is about God, and God is the king who is. Ultimately, God is the king, and that's what we're meant to uh, have in mind and have impressed upon us again and again as we read 1 Samuel. God is the king who is, presenting himself to us as we read 1 Samuel. But the way the entire book progresses is in, well, two parts, three stages, I'll explain. Progresses according to this way. First, by introducing a bad king. That's King Saul. That's chapters 1 through 15. Second, introducing a good king. That's chapters 16 through 31. That's David. But both of these kings, this bad king and this good king, they combine. And in two different ways, they point us, point us toward the true king. That's Jesus. We have Saul and we have David. And in two different ways, they point us toward the true king, Jesus. That's what the book is doing. That's what the book is all about. And so part one is about King Saul, who points us to the true king by the means of contrast. You see, Saul is not like the true king. He is the king that Israel then, or we now, think we want. <laughs> he's handsome. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's appearing like he can get it done. He's looking like a king like all the nations have. Yet, when Israel's longing and when our longing for a king leads us to drink from the well of, of Saul, it's like salt water to our thirsty souls, where instead of being refreshed as the water touches our lips, we're in for a rude awakening as the water meets our lips and we take that drink because we're left thirstier, more desperate, in a dire, more dire need of longing than we were before we took the drink. Saul is salt water to our souls. And in part one of 1 Samuel, we saw that the more we drank from the well of Saul, the more we've come to long for a true king who could actually satisfy that thirst, who could actually satisfy that longing for a king and a kingdom that is perfect and righteous and stable and joyful and, and peaceful. 
We've seen Saul in his lack of obedience to God's will. We've seen his failure to occupy the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And among other things, we've seen his willingness to put his own pride and his own preferences not only above what God wants from him, um, you know, as in failing to devote all of uh, the things of the Amalekites to destruction back in chapter 15. He didn't obey God's clear word and instruction to him. He put his pride and preferences before what God wanted, but also he put his own pride and preferences before God's people. Before God and before God's people. We saw this back in chapter 14 where he made a rash vow that said, hey, nobody eat. You all fast until my enemies have been avenged. What resulted was that his people were starving. They were hungry. And when they did win the battle and it was over and they got the spoil, they were so hungry they ate the food with the blood still in it, which is a violation of God's law. They sinned because Saul set them up uh, in such a selfish scenario that when the food came, they didn't listen to God's instructions for eating it, but they sinned and they ate the blood. And not only that, but Saul's rash vow almost led his son Jonathan to be killed. Saul is a king who hasn't cared for what God would have him uh, care for, nor has he cared for God's people. And as we've seen him and as we've drank again and again from his well, it should leave us longing and thirsty and desperate for a king who would come and who would listen to God and care for his people. And so the purpose of Saul is to make us desperate for this king we really need. And in the first 15 chapters of the book, we've seen that for us, just like for Israel then, that pursuing a king of our own desire a king of our own making, uh, doesn't lead us to the satisfaction we're longing for. Far from it. It actually leaves us all further dissatisfied. And this teaches us a larger lesson. (laughs) Frankly, that we don't know better than God. (laughs) And that whenever we try to live uh, like we're the ultimate king in our story, or we try to prop up lesser kings who will serve and worship apart from God, (laughs) disaster ensues inevitably. And whenever we place our trust or our hopes in lesser kings, false gods, imperfect politicians, even ourselves, or in fact any human effort or any human work to bring in any kind of kingdom apart from God who is the king, all these things lead to destruction, to disaster, and lead us farther from the satisfaction we're longing for. Saul is the king we want, but he's not the king we need. And the first half of the book has made this clear to us, and it has increased our experience of thirst. But into this desperation, (laughs) there's good news. We've drank from the well of Saul, but now the light turns to shine upon another well. And we see David enter the scene. And David, he points us to the true king, not by way of contrast, but by way of correspondence. David is like the true king. And as we come to his well, we drink from the water. And it begins to refresh us, to relieve us, to quench our thirst. There's just one problem. The well, it doesn't run deep enough. Eventually, even David's well, which begins to refresh us, it will run dry. It has a finite limit in depth. But as we drink from David's well and our thirst begins to be quenched, as we see the goodness of the king who is on display in him, we're pointed forward to the one who is Christ, who is a well church that is infinite, inexhaustible, full of waters of life that we can drink deeply from and be satisfied. 
He is the true king we long for, the true king we can receive, the king that David points us toward. And this is what the second part of 1 Samuel is all about, pointing us forward to Christ, who is himself the fountain of life that we come to drink from. And so, whereas the first part of 1 Samuel was, this is not the king we need, David's then presented, and we're led to think, behold, this is the king we need. Ultimately, 1 Samuel in the second half is about presenting the king, David, who says, behold, here is Christ. Christ is the king you're longing for, the king you need. And so, with all that set up, without any further ado, let's go now to meet him. Let's go now to meet David, the one who points us to Christ. Let's direct our attention to God's word and be introduced to David, who is God's man, who points us toward Jesus, the God-man, the true king and true satisfier of our souls. So read with me beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 23, and then pray. God's word says, beginning in verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema to pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants, who are before you, to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. 
And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Church, this is God's word to us. Let's pray and ask God's spirit to meet us. Lord, we thank you for the gift that is your word. And we thank you that as often as we read it and as we hear it proclaimed that you are speaking in it, and through it. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and work through this word um, as I proclaim it and as I preach it to my friends to make you, the king, evident and revealed afresh in our minds and our hearts. That Lord, your spirit would come and illuminate us and grant us understanding and would work in our hearts so as to change them and to transform them and to give us, Lord, satisfaction that's found in you, joy that's found in you, rest and security and refuge that's all found in you. So Lord, we pray and we ask that you would work through your word for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So at the conclusion of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has been dramatically and climactically and decisively rejected. His kingdom has been torn from him just as the robe of Samuel's garment was torn. Saul has been rejected. Samuel is grieving. God has said, this one will not be my king. And so leading into chapter 16, leading into the second half of the book, the big question then is, who will it be? If Saul's not king, who is? Who is going to be the one to replace him? And this is the question that we, well, obviously, we've seen answered in the reading of our text this morning. But to help us frame it, to help us understand it, the big question we're asking is, who will replace Saul, the mighty Saul, the one who was always mentioned as having a sword or spear in his hand, or even nearby, the one who stood head and shoulders above all the rest, who was handsome, who was wealthy, who was of a good family stock, as Kyle put it earlier in our, in our series, who was himself Mr. Israel, <laughs> the man that all men wanted to be king. Who can come and replace this one? And we remind ourselves that as we ask this question, God hasn't left us in the dark as to what sort of criteria he's using here. And initially, back in chapter 13, when Saul was first told that he wouldn't have a dynasty after disobeying God and offering a sacrifice, the Lord said that, this dynasty wouldn't happen, this dynasty wouldn't go forward from Saul's line, but that God would find another one after him to be king. And do you remember what sort of man he was looking for? A man 
after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. God is looking for a man that's after his own heart. And even as we read in our text today, when Samuel first gazed upon Eliab, who seemed to be like Saul and was tall and handsome and strong and a likely candidate, what did God tell him? He said, you look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. And so we see that the heart is the principal criteria that God is operating under by which he is going to select the king. The heart. And so we see that 1 Samuel chapter 16, even as it presents David, even as it presents the new, you know, second half of this book, even as we're moving the narrative along, what this chapter is principally about then, and this new king being chosen, is the very heart of the king. God's looking for a man after his own heart. He's looking according to the heart. And so what we see then revealed in this chapter is what the heart of the king is like. What is the deepest essence? What is the deepest beating of the king's own heart? And as David points to and prepares the way for Christ, what we see here in David comes to foreshadow and typify and correspond to what will be even more greatly and fully realized in Jesus. And so what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16 regarding the heart of David, it points us to the very heart of Christ. And this is significant because we've seen Saul and the people of Israel and us in our experience of reading this book have lived under Saul. We've lived under a bad king who has been selfish and prideful and tyrannical, whose heart beat for his own pride and his own prominence and his own preferences. The people were an afterthought. Even God was an afterthought. We've seen that kind of king, and we live under kings like Saul even today. And we live as people who live lives uh, in which things are difficult, things are hard, we experience sickness. Uh, this life is not easy that we live. And it would be one thing, even jumping off from Saul the imperfect king to thinking about God as our king, right? It's one thing to think that, yes, Okay, we've heard it, we've heard it, we've heard it again. God is the king who is. Christ is the true king. I get it. You're making it clear. Yet my life is still hard. <laughs> yet I'm still getting sick. Yet I'm still feeling surrounded by all these circumstances, these, these enemies that are breaking into my life in the form of fear or anxiety. I'm still confused. I'm still doubting. Things never seem to give me a break. <laughs> and so, yes, I hear that God is the king, that he's in control, but sometimes... Just that alone, that he is Lord, isn't encouraging to me because my life is hard. And what we have this morning before us is a source of encouragement. Because not only do we see that God is Lord, but that he is the Lord who loves us. That God is Lord over us, but he is also the Lord who loves us. And this is what we come to see in the heart of David, which points us to the heart of Christ, our King. Yes, God is Lord. He is the king who is, but he's a certain kind of king. And his heart reveals that he is a king who loves his people. And so David, we see presented here in chapter 16, he is a king who, unlike Saul, who was out for himself, whose heart beat for his pride and for his prominence. What we see here in describing David in chapter 16 is that the true heart of the true king is this, that the heart of the king is a heart that is for his people. 
The heart of the king is a heart that is for his people. In other words, very simply, what we see here in David, which points us toward Christ, is that the king's heart beats for his people. Not for his um, just, you know, selfish pride or prominence um, or for his glory without concern or regard for his people. Though David, and yes, Jesus, is certainly glorious. We don't want to discount that. It's not that it's not about him or his glory or his power, but he's powerful. He's prominent, and he's preeminent in such a way that those things, his power, his prominence, his glory, they're experienced through a kind of kingship over us, his people, that reveals the glories of the king through his goodness toward his people. The glories of the king are seen in his goodness toward his people. In contrast to Saul, David points us to a kind of king who exercises his might, his concern, his care, his protection, and his deliverance for the sake of his people. And in this way, we see how wonderful, how powerful, how generous, and how lovely he is. So the heart of the king is for his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it gives us two insights into just what that heart is like. Two ways and two angles into looking at the heart of the king as it's expressed toward his people. And these two aspects of what the king's heart is like are going to form our outline for the rest of our time together this morning. And the first is that the king's heart is a shepherd's heart. This is verses 1 through 13. And secondly, that the king's heart is a servant's heart. This is verses 14 through 23. And so in 1 Samuel 16, we see the king's heart on display. It's a heart that is for his people, and this forness for the people is expressed as the king is both a shepherd and a servant. And we'll see what that means as we dive in. So with that, turning our attention to point number one. First, when we look at this king, we see that he is a shepherd. The king's heart is a shepherd's heart. And we draw our attention back to our narrative here in chapter 16, looking at David. And in summary, as we're diving into this uh, half of the the sermon here, we see that David wasn't even considered for greatness. David wasn't even considered by his father to be even a possible candidate for the kingship. Samuel comes to town being sent by God. He says, Lord, this is going to be a dangerous mission. Saul might try to uh, cut me off on the way. He says, go gather the elders. Tell them to get Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Jesse, if you're remembering uh, your Bible stories, is the grandson of Boaz, um, the husband of Ruth. And so we see, and he's also a member of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah being a tribe that both uh, Jacob and Moses have said will one day be royal, will wield the scepter. And we see Ruth who is a a picture and an expression of of faithfulness, a a picture of God's own faithfulness to his people. And so the line of Judah and uh, Jesse here is a people who are poised to be a royal people and have been seen to be a faithful people. And this is who David comes from. But first, when they all come together, Samuel and the elders and Jesse, they're going to prepare a sacrifice and they're going to have dinner together. But David, he isn't invited to dinner. And as the men are gathered and Samuel looks upon them and he's waiting for God to tell him which of the sons of Jesse will be the king, he goes, as we read, one by one by one. 
and none of them are the guy. (laughs) And he goes, surely this one must be it. Surely this one must be it. And God again reminds him, Samuel, you're looking at the outward appearance. This is the Saul criteria, but you need to use my criteria. You need to look upon the heart. And after exhausting all the other options, all seven brothers who were older and taller and more impressive and more established than David, after passing through all of these men, they come to the end of the line and Samuel says, is there anybody else? Because none of these guys are the guy. <laughs> and Jesse confirms that, yes, he has one more son, and that this son is the youngest of the bunch. And he's not here right now. He didn't get invited to the dinner party where we're going to eat the, the slaughtered calf, and we're going to have good food and good drink, and God is going to do something special, and one of my sons will be great. <laughs> Jesse didn't think to invite David <laughs> because... He's too busy. He's too busy keeping the sheep. David isn't considered for greatness according to what man might perceive, according to what Jesse would think or what Samuel would think. But according to God, this is just the kind of man he wants. A man who was too busy keeping the sheep to come to dinner. (laughs) But as Samuel discovers that there's one more son, he says, go and get him. We won't sit down and start this meal until he arrives. And as we read, As he does arrive, Samuel beholds him, and the Lord tells him in verse 12, Arise and anoint him, for this one is the one, and his name is David. David the king is anointed, and he's anointed by the prophet. And after this, in verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. And so we see that David um, was the one who was the man after God's own heart, the man chosen for his heart. He's now been appointed and equipped by the Spirit of God, to be the king over God's people. And what's crazy and unexpected about this is that the king, after God's own heart, in contrast to Saul the warrior, Mr. Israel, this king whom God picks is a shepherd boy. He's a shepherd boy who was counted out by his father, yet chosen by God. And this carries on the theme of reversal that we've encountered throughout the book of 1 Samuel already, that we saw Um, as early on as chapter 2, where God says that these sorts of things are going to happen as the narrative unfolds in 1 Samuel. He says that the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. That the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. That he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And what we see here in God's choosing of David is this reversal taking place yet again. God upending what man would think would be powerful, wise, and good, and putting forth his alternative, which is so unexpected, but so much better. And so here we see reversal in that the youngest son is chosen over all the oldest, that the lowest one was chosen to ascend to greatness. And this new King David, he would rise up, and we'll read in 1 Samuel that he will rise up from the lowest point. And in this way, he'll prepare us to receive the true king, Jesus, who would descend from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows in his life and in his death. Being, as we just celebrated and sung about at Christmas time, being born in a major, living a life of obscurity, facing rejection from all those in leadership and in influence in society, dying as a criminal, but being raised up and proven by God to be the holy and righteous Lord over all. 
we see that low to high was David's way of life, was Christ's way of life, and will be the way of life for Christ's people as well, as God takes what is humble and exalts it at the proper time. And so, back to David. He's young, he's unimpressive, and he's too busy keeping the sheep to come to dinner, yet he's the king. And in this church, this is what we have to seize upon in this first point, that God's chosen king was a shepherd. That the man after God's own heart was one whose heart was shaped by his shepherding work. And so, what, what did this look like for David, being a shepherd? <laughs> did he manage some kind of ancient petting zoo <laughs> and take the sheep to, to children's birthday parties? Was it this kind of uh, quaint little thing? What's so great about shepherding? And why would the king being a shepherd be encouraging to God's people then or to God's people now? And the short answer is this. What's so great about shepherds is that shepherds, they protect and they care for their sheep. The Lord, he looks on the heart, and the heart of the king he's chosen is the heart of a caring shepherd. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is looking forward to next week, we get a little glimpse into what David's shepherding looked like to help form our picture of his shepherding work and help point us to Christ as our shepherd. And so after telling King Saul that he'll fight Goliath, Saul replies to David in this way in chapter 17, verses 33 through 36. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. He says, I used to be a shepherd. And when there came a lion or a bear... (laughs) Thank you, Quentin. (laughs) Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. (laughs) When there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock. I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and struck him, and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. (laughs) What's so great about shepherding? (laughs) Shepherds protect their flock. David, he defeated lions and bears and would go on to defeat Goliath as well as tens of thousands of enemies as Israel's king. And like Saul, David will win battles and he'll conquer enemies. And if Saul did anything good, he did that good. He fought and he won battles and he conquered. But the emphasis here that makes them distinct is that the emphasis of his role as a shepherd over the sheep is that he doesn't just conquer enemies out there but that he protects his people and he cares for them like a shepherd would watch over and care for his sheep. He fights for his people like a shepherd fights for his sheep. On the other hand, Saul, he fought for his own glory and his own gain, but David the shepherd fights as a protector, as a deliverer of his sheep. He looks out for the flock and his might is expressed in his care for them. This is what's significant about him being a shepherd. And so David, he's presented as a king, ruling over God's people. um, And that rule over God's people, seen in his shepherding, is going to be marked by a care for God's people. (laughs) He's not just a lord, but he is a lover of God's people. He conquers because he cares for them. And after David, all throughout the Old Testament, 
leaders come to be referred to as shepherds. We'll see this in the prophets. We'll see this carrying on in the Old Testament. So much so that when God speaks to his people in exile 500 years after David's time and speaks to them through the prophet Ezekiel, he tells them that their future restoration, their return to the land, their ultimate deliverance from their enemies, the ultimate uh, ushering in of God's kingdom, all that will take place in that restoration, he says, will come through the work of a shepherd. And who is this shepherd, you might be asking? (laughs) It's God himself. Listen to this. In Ezekiel 34, verses 15 and 16, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my people. I will keep the flock like a shepherd protects and cares for his sheep. And church, this promise of God in Ezekiel chapter 34 was fulfilled ultimately when God the Son, God the shepherd, took on flesh and came into this world to seek and save what was lost, to heal and to save his own and meet his weak flock and meet us even now today, with his divine strength. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he said, I am the good shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and they know me. These are my people and I have sworn to exercise my power, my lordship, my rule, and my reign to protect them, to care for them, and to express my love toward them. Jesus came to save a people, church, for, for himself, And like a shepherd, Jesus, he he treats us like David, the shepherd, would treat his flock. He leads us. (laughs) He guides us. He protects us. He he nourishes us. He sees to it that we are safe and and fed (laughs) and whole. And right now, this morning, if you're his, know this, that he knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows your frailty. He knows exactly what it is you need like a shepherd knows his sheep. He knows where they're vulnerable. He knows where their food is. He knows where to make them lie down in safety. Jesus knows you. He cares for you. And his aim is to keep you close to himself, to give you rest and to strengthen you. As 1 Peter 2, 25 says of us who belong to Christ by faith, it says this, For you were straying like sheep. We all are sheep. (laughs) Jesus is the shepherd and we've always been sheep. And it says, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4 says, of the flock of God, who like David back in 1 Samuel 17, unfailingly keeps watch over his flock. We grow weary, (laughs) but he doesn't. We lie down to sleep and rest, but he doesn't. We're prone to stray, but he brings us back to himself time and time again. When we foolishly think that we can find nourishment apart from his life-giving word, he shows us the deadened way of seeking life apart from him and offers us again and afresh the very bread and words of life. Christ is our shepherd. David is the king who is the good king, and he points us to this true king, and that king is a shepherd. He's a king who exercises his conquering rule through love 
and concern for those whom he rules over. Jesus is the chief shepherd of our souls, and in the words of Psalm 23, to paraphrase them a little bit, listen to these words. The Lord Jesus is our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. And I could go on and read the whole thing, but you can read it this week. Psalm chapter 23, Christ shepherding our souls. David shepherding his sheep, Christ shepherding our souls. We have a king, church, who conquers in an act of his care for us. His conquering is never separated from his caring. His might is displayed in his loving protection of his people. This is the kind of king our souls need, isn't it? Not just to know that someone's in charge out there, but that the one who rules and reigns does so for us because he loves and cares for us. One whose power is put toward our good and genuine concern for us. And this morning, if you're a Christian and you're you're hearing this, Christ has brought you into his fold. Think of yourself like a sheep and think of him like your shepherd. He knows you, your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, and your fears. He loves you, not because of what you've done to earn it, but just because you're his. And he's pledged himself to protect you forever. Through whatever comes your way in life, whatever evil that you face, even the power of sin and death itself, he pledges to protect you and lead you into eternal life of green pastures and still waters. And so, this morning, I would just encourage you, if anyone's hearing these words and feeling weary, feeling like, yeah, I think God's in control, but I don't know if he cares for me, respond to these words. Dwell upon these realities, and right now, rest in the reality that Christ is your shepherd's, that whatever lions or bears (laughs) seem to be lurking around you, Christ will never allow them to take you away from him. Even if it feels like right now you're caught in the teeth of an enemy, just like David's sheep in 1 Samuel 17, of some enemy that's overtaking you, of of fear, of, of shame, of anxiety, even the experience of sickness and suffering that doesn't seem to leave you, of doubt, of the accusations of Satan himself, if any of these things seem to have you in their grip, know this, that Jesus will deliver you from out of their mouths. He's the shepherd who cares for his sheep. Church, this is the love of our shepherd king, doing good to those who are his own. And we continue now to see his heart on display in the next scene in chapter 16, but this time doing good for his foes. So in the first part, he was doing good for his own. Now he's doing good for his foes. And this brings us to point number two, that he's the king with a servant's heart. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 back in our text. We see that Samuel um, anoints David and that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then with a literary contrast here in verse 14, just as David is filled with the Spirit, the Spirit departs from Saul and he receives a new sort of spirit. (laughs) He receives a harmful spirit from the Lord that torments him. And so this next scene in our text is, is marked by Saul's suffering. Saul receives a harmful spirit as part of God's judgment, part of his punishment upon him. And he is feeling the affliction of the spirit. We don't know exactly if it was physical, if it was mental, but suffice it to say, he is in in anguish that he can't deliver himself from. He is feeling harmed and threatened in a way that he can't um, protect himself. He can't deliver himself from this trouble on his own. And so 
we see here that into this distress that Saul has, into this distress that Saul, the very enemy and opponent of God, is feeling, <laughs> David comes to help him. David comes to serve him. And in doing so, he does good to one who didn't deserve it. And so, as Saul is being tormented, he's looking for a solution. And in verses 16 and following, um, his servants suggest to him, find someone who's good at playing the lyre, <laughs> thinking that as you hear the, the, the sounds of the music, it'll soothe your soul and the spirit will depart from you. They say, find someone who's good at playing. And Saul says, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Provide for me a man who can do this, who can help to alleviate my suffering. And one of them answers and says, behold, I know that Jesse's son, he's a great guitar player. He's a, a great warrior. He is a, a man of war. He's prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence. The Lord's with him. He, he seems to be the guy for the job here. Bring him in. And Saul says, that sounds like a great idea. Let me send to Jesse and request his son to come and serve me. And so David does just that. David, who's just been anointed king over Israel, comes now to serve the current king of Israel. David has been anointed to ascend to the throne, but his first act, church, after that anointing, is to stand beside it, to descend below it, and to serve the one who is upon the throne. And we can appreciate the irony here, can't we? <laughs> that Saul has invited his very own enemy <laughs> into his court to get closer to the throne that he'll try desperately to hang on to. Um, <laughs> I would gather from that that Saul probably doesn't know that David has been anointed. <laughs> but we do. We know he's been anointed, and we can appreciate the irony. But not just the irony, but we can appreciate the heart, then, that's expressed regarding the king. We see the heart of David the king, and ultimately, yes, the heart of Christ our king, on display here. Because, as I said, in David's first act, the very next scene after his anointing, what does he do? Does he go off and do something great? Does he go and win a battle? Does he go and just claim the throne in some kind of coup? <laughs> no. In his very first act as the anointed one, he serves. He serves. David goes low, church, before being raised up. His first act toward his ascent to the throne is one of descending beside the throne. David comes to serve Saul, and he allows God to raise him up at the proper time. And David's road to the throne, we'll see in 1 Samuel, it's going to be a long one. And by the end of the book, 31 chapters in, he'll have yet to officially occupy the office of king. And what we can't miss from this long journey that he'll take uh, to the throne is that it first begins his ascent with the descent. That humiliation, even as we heard in our um, confession this morning, is his first step to exaltation. And again, this will prepare us to see and to receive Christ. The one who was presented as the anointed one of God and then spent three years of life doing ministry, calling the sick and the lowly and the least to follow him, serving and healing and teaching and feeling compassion for the crowds, only to be rejected by the leaders and those in influence and prominence, ending up in his death, a death that would be overturned by God as he raised him from the dead, but still his path to glory was one that walked through shame and humiliation and suffering. And what we'll see in David's life is meant to be an analogy and a pointer to the life of Christ. And David will prepare us to see Christ as the king who is in his humiliation and exaltation, the king who is good, the king who is true, and the king that is for his people. And so David comes 
to serve Saul. And he serves him as he plays the lyre and as he soothes Saul's spirit from what's harmful to him uh, by playing a song. And in this way, we need to grasp the reality that he is now helping and he's healing God's own enemy. He's doing good and God is using him to do good to one who certainly didn't deserve it. And what's the upshot of this? Well, this points us to Jesus, who came to do good to those who certainly didn't deserve it, who came to serve other souls, namely us, who came to play an even greater song with an even greater power and potency that would release us from what was harmful to us, what was threatening our souls, namely our sin, that he would come and upon the instrument of the cross, he would serve us by giving himself up so that we could be set free from sin and from death and from all the harm that we were enduring, being estranged and enemies of God, just like Saul was. Like David, Jesus came to serve and set free uh, those who didn't deserve good, but nonetheless those he came to do good for. Listen to this from Mark chapter 10. As we dwell upon and we behold the glory of the service of Jesus. In Mark 10 verse 42 through 45, it says this, that Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For, and here it is, even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Kings, they're meant to be served. <laughs> Yet David, and even more greatly Jesus, they came to serve. Jesus came to serve, and his life was a life of service, both to God and to his neighbor. And the greatest rendering of his service was his giving of his life upon the cross. His death was a service to us as our ransom. That is the price that would be paid to um, free a guilty party from punishment and penalty, from the sentence of, of, of debt that hung over a debtor. His life was given as a ransom to serve us as he died upon the cross. And, and here we see that Jesus is our good shepherd, but also simultaneously, he's, in, he's the Lamb of God who has been slain for our sins. The good shepherd and the Lamb who's come to set us free to remove the most threatening, harmful, and terrible thing, church, that we could experience, our sin, and the death that it causes, and the estrangement from God that it brings. Jesus died to do the ultimate good and the greatest service to those who were like Saul, rejectors of the king. And his earthly life and his death, they motivated that service as he gave himself for us. And what's more is that even in his resurrection and his reign, he continues to serve us now as our great high priest, unceasingly praying for us and interceding for us. He's taking our request moment by moment as often as we utter them to the Father. He's sending his spirit to us to be our help. And he's meeting us by his grace time and time again. Even now, he's a risen king who serves his people according to the inexhaustible riches of his grace. Church, he is a king who gives his people, who gives us today a standing invitation that says with confidence, 
draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He invites us to come to him as often as we need it, never fearing that he'll turn us away, that he'll be too busy for us, <laughs> that he'll be unconcerned about us or even unable to help us. He'll never be stretched too thin, unable to bear the weight of your burdens or lacking the ability to help you. Church, the well of his heart toward you, it will never run dry. It will never run out. It will never exhaust. King Jesus, he stands ever and always ready to serve you according to all the riches of his grace. What a king we have in him, who is our shepherd, who is our servant, who shows his glory most fully and his goodness toward us. And as we dwell upon these things, as we meditate upon them, as we respond to the king's heart for us, I want to leave us with two applications um, as we go and as we leave together this morning. Two applications that flow from Christ's heart for his people. And the first is, is simple, yet we can't pass it by. The first application would be to receive Christ's heart for you. And first and foremost is that if you don't believe and you don't yet know Christ, the way to become a part of his flock is by faith in him, by trusting him as the king of your life, as the Lord of your life, as the one who can bear all your burdens, sustain all your hopes, and give to you life and joy and peace. His love and his concern that we're discussing today, it's for his people. And to receive it, you must become a part of his people. And you can do so by believing, by saying, yes, Jesus, I desire your shepherding heart, your servant's heart. I want your love and your care to deliver me from my enemies, to sustain me through this life, to deliver me from all my burdens. Trust in Christ, and you can come into his flock and receive his care today. But for the rest of us, those who know Christ and are being found in his flock, even as you're hearing this right now, or you're hearing this in your homes on the live stream, rest in Christ. Receive his heart by resting in him. This morning, be reminded of Jesus' heart towards you and rest in the reality. Just rest in his care. Receive his gracious service toward you. He's strong when you're weak. He's up at all times keeping watch over you while you sleep and when you feel defenseless. And even if you're walking through the valley of a shadow of death right now, as you experience sickness or discouragement, he's walking with you and he's near you and he'll deliver you from this yet again. Rest in Christ this morning. Rest in the care and the service of your king. His heart is for you. His heart is for his people. And the second thing that we want to apply as we receive this word today is that just as his, as his heart is for us, we would want our hearts to beat and to be for his people as well. Second thing would be to reflect Christ's heart toward others. First, receive Christ's heart for you. Second, reflect his heart toward others. Have a heart for his people, just as he has a heart for his people. And this is simple, um, but has profound effects in our, in our hearts and our lives together as a church. And a couple ideas, a couple ways in which you can begin to uh, develop, to cultivate, to uh, reorient your heart to the people of Christ. 
a couple of things. One would be to regain your joy in serving. Um, if serving is something that's been on pause for you, something that's come to be stale, something that feels burdensome or tiring, encourage you to behold your king's heart of service, his life of service, his death upon the cross for you, and to throw yourself back into a life of serving with joy, expecting that as you serve as he served, that he would meet you with joy. Second, would be to see God's grace in the church's heart for the church. And I've been seeing this grace this past week. For all those who have been on our Slack page and in our prayer channel, <laughs> it's been an awesome thing to see that the sickness in our church has simultaneously exposed the health <laughs> of our church. As we've seen members caring for each other, sharing their requests, pouring out their hearts, and having their prayers answered, having their needs met. See God's grace in the life of the church and commit continually to sharing those requests, to bearing those requests before God, and praising God as you see the church's heart mimicking and reflecting the very heart of Christ. And finally, would you, as Christ made our burden his burden, would we make each other's burdens our burdens? Would we bear the burdens of others? Christ bore our most grievous, weighty burden upon the cross to set us free from sin and death so that we could be like him, bearing the burdens of each other. And so don't just, this isn't a call to feel bad for people who are sick. It's not a call to say, okay, well, I'm going to say more often than not right now that I'll be praying for you and maybe I'll do it. <laughs> but this is a call to really engage with each other, church, to when you see the request come, stop and pray. When you see someone who's sick and struggling, offer, what can I do practically to help you and to serve you? What can I do tangibly to express Christ's own heart for you? whether that's a phone call or a text or a meal delivery or some electrolytes taken over to the house <laughs> as someone is trying to get by through the sickness. Um, whatever it might be, whatever need exists, offer to meet it and follow through on it. In this way, we care for each other with the very heart and the very care of Christ. And we serve one another because we've been served so well by King Jesus. And so church, as we wrap up this morning, the glory of our King is most beautifully revealed in his goodness toward his people. David's heart was for the people of Israel then, and Jesus' heart is for his people of yesterday, today, and forever. This is something that should lead us into comfort, into rest, and in rejoicing in the beautiful um, heart of Christ. The king's heart is for his people, and we praise him for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word which reminds us that you are not indifferent toward us, that even as you are the Lord of our lives, you're also the lover of our souls, that your heart is for your people and that we can rest in and trust in and rejoice in your love and your care for us. Lord, would you help us to do that and being moved by your service, uh, be serving others for your glory and for the good of this body, your flock here at Cross of Grace Santa Ana. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.